Net Zero Hero, Musings on Residential Solar. I am a proud early adopter. It's safe to say, however, there have been times it has led me wildly wrong. Anyone remember the Rio PMP300? I was the customer who actually bought it. Never mind the dozen song capacity or the incomprehensible user interface, I was going to be the first kid on the block to be musically digital from end to end. To summarize the experience in a word, brutal. Then there was the worst software in the history of computing, ActiveSync. I was the guy who bought the first Windows phone and subjected myself to the technological equivalent of a colonoscopy just to be the first to have one and sync it with my PC. Blackberries? They were for kids. Windows phone was a real phone. It said so right there in the name. In a word, brutal. Just more so. As I consider residential solar, therefore, I'm wondering, maybe for the first time in my life, if my early adopter shield should be up and whether I should let others pave the solar highway. There is a significant difference in this case. In my earlier early adopter escapades, I could at least be shown up as a rube in the privacy of my own home. There was only my wife providing judgmental looks of disapproval or pity. I'm not sure which exactly. With the consideration of residential solar, however, there is the potential of subjecting myself to a much harsher brand of judgment. That is, yes, the annual select committee inquiry that is the neighborhood summer barbecue. Because solar panels are so prominent, I am pretty much guaranteed a non-stop string of engagements with the opening number always being the same. So how is that solar thing working out for you? It reminds me of those heady days when satellite TV made its debut. Was I going to be the guy with the eight-foot satellite dish, which might as well have had the word geek painted on it in fluorescent letters? Same thing. So how's that satellite thing working out for you? When I would have told them it was great being able to watch Johnny Carson at 9.30, their expression would scream, that's it? That's why we're staring at Apollo ground control from across the street? The argument I made just did not seem that good to them. It really was just a matter of time before the agricultural-sounding feed horn mysteriously disappeared, and then the ironically petal-shaped panels started to drop off one by one. Love me, love me not, and geek became eek. So it is with residential solar. I might as well prepare my answers to the barbecue quiz questions, asked chillingly with a smile, well in advance to see if they pass the laugh derision test. Here's what I've come up with. I can fairly easily be net zero, which is to say I can generate as much electricity as my household needs, and then some. In my case, that was going to be with an array of photovoltaic panels lying flat against and more or less covering the roof of our not-even-close-to-facing-south two-car garage. My headline for the barbecue season, therefore, is I'm a net zero hero. My profligate use of household electricity is no longer a burden to the planet. That's the good news. There are, however, a fairly long list of gotchas, which I can bury somewhere in the rest of my act, particularly if I articulate them using sufficiently undecipherable language, and if the music is a little too loud. First of all, let's assume away the environmental footprint required to create the solar panels in the first place. When the truth is ugly enough, sometimes you simply have to ignore it. Moving on. Arbitrarily, my working assumption is that my monthly cost for solar generation should be the same as I'm paying for electricity now. Whoa, wait a second. I thought solar-generated electricity was free. 
Well, it is, sort of, but not exactly. The capital cost of the system is fairly high, so I would end up putting some cash down on a lease for the life of the system, which is in the 20 to 25 year range. In total, there's the lost benefit of having cash tied up in the solar asset for that period, plus capital depreciation, plus the lease payment itself. Total those numbers up and adjust things until they are equal to the current electricity bill. Now I know for sure what I'm going to be paying for electricity for the life of the panels, the next quarter of a century, give or take. The slightly deeper analysis, of course, is that if I'm going long on electricity and that bet pans out, I'm money ahead. If I'm short on it, then I'm going to feel steadily more pain as the years go by. Is electricity going to cost less in the future? Who really knows, but it seems unlikely. Probably more. Is there a picoscale nuclear reactor out there somewhere which is going to make my solar panels the equivalent of that 8-foot satellite dish and make electricity too cheap to meter? Dunno. Maybe. Next, and with apologies to William F. Gibson for mangling his quote, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. It's the same but different with electricity. There is as much as anybody could ever want. It's the distribution, both geographically and in time, that's the problem. You see, electricity is the essence of the word ephemeral. It's here and it's not here, all at the same time. When you generate it, you either have to use it immediately, waste it, or quickly put it somewhere until you do need it. Often, that's not when the sun is shining, so you'll need a big battery. That can be courtesy of our friends at Tesla Motors, for example, or as brought to you by your local electric company through something called net metering. In a manner of speaking, it allows you to treat the utility like said big battery, blow electrons into the grid when the sun is shining, and suck them back out again when it's dark. You pay, or get paid, for the net difference between the blowing and the sucking. But there is a problem. While the utility company may be happy or at least obliged, to pay you the market rate for an electron, they may not be as happy to have you use the wires they own, and for which they have paid handsomely for decades. Don't think that's a problem? Ask the rooftop solar industry in Nevada. A recent decision by that state's Public Utilities Commission pretty much killed them off. The electric company still has to pay for the electron generated by the rooftop solar array, but you don't get to use the electric company's wires for free. In other words, you will buy electricity from the electric company at one rate, but sell it to them at a much different, much lower rate. It's enough to make the difference between solar making sense and not, and Nevada is one heck of a sunny state. Think you can slather every square inch of your suburban property in photovoltaics and power the entire neighborhood? Not so fast, Edison. You are likely going to run afoul of both residential zoning laws and statutory regulation that allows you to generate only what you need plus a small margin. The electric company, frankly, doesn't want you and your slick solar panels for competition. They made a long bet on electricity years ago. They're going to want to see that pay off and often have legislative protection to see that happens. Also, Beware of the folks from the government who identify themselves as such and say they're here to help. Many governments are just itching to at least greenwash their policies. Using our money to have us build rooftop solar is a really compelling way to do that. It sure does look good on TV. But can those subsidies come and go? Yes, about as fast as the government's promising them. 
Therefore, it's hard to reliably work these subsidies into the analysis. Besides, if residential solar is such a good idea, then shouldn't it stand on its own two economic feet? Finally, I have left the best for last and it is based on having a niece and nephews who, along with a lot of other nieces and nephews, will inherit this planet from all of us. It's that solar just seems like the right thing to do. So long as the economics can stand the impeccable financial review of the summer barbecue, then knowing for the next quarter of a century I blew more than I sucked, that's good enough for me. I'm Terrence C. Gannon, and I'm not there yet. Thank you so much for listening, and if you like what you've heard, please rate the show on iTunes or Facebook. It really helps build the audience, which means I get to keep doing this. Not There Yet is a weekly series of short essays podcasted from the second decade of the 21st century. They are all written and read by me, and the entire production is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Canada. All rights are reserved. If you prefer, you can find the text version of this essay at www.ntyessays.com articles. Our music is Life As We Make It by All of Music, available on Premium Beat. The Not There Yet podcast is hosted on Fireside of Austin, Texas. The show is recorded using Audio-Technica microphones and a Zoom H4n digital recorder. It is edited and mixed on Logic Pro from Apple. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, remember, it's the journey, not the destination. It really doesn't matter if you're not there yet. Thank you.